There was no last week. Maybe that's why. Do we have any questions left over from any previous classes? <laughs> Your pure honesty be, be caused you not to be able to answer me. Okay. So, we are in another very interesting section of Conversations with Yogananda. We are up to number 315. Swamiji speaking. Sir, I said to the Master one day, Jean Haupt is discouraged, that was one of his fellow monks, because someone told him, Ramakrishna said, grace is only a sport of God's. To Jean, this statement means that a person might strive spiritually for years and get nowhere, whereas God might reveal himself to any drunkard for no other reason than that he felt like doing so. The master was indignant at this suggestion. Ramakrishna would never have said that, he replied. That is what happens when unenlightened people try to interpret the scriptures and the teachings of the masters. God is no creature of whims. It may, of course, look like sport sometimes. That's because people can't see the effects of past karma. God works within the law, however. He created the law. Why would he go against it? Tell Haupt I said this is a serious misunderstanding on his part. I will, sir, I replied. I paused, then continued. Sir, won't you please speak with him? I think he has been going through a hard time lately. Well, said the master with a slight air of mental detachment, Satan is testing the organization. Haupt is not the only one. Is that what the trouble has been, I said? It has seemed as though something were giving people a hard time. Quite a few heads will roll, he commented sadly but acceptingly. Will it go on very long, Master? Quite some time, he replied. After a pause, he continued. It all started when that boy Jan left Encinitas, then Smith left. Quite a few more will go. There's a lot in that one. Let's sort of start at the beginning. You know, um, Sister St. Teresa of Avila, uh, when she started her reform order, she made these small convents with 12 nuns, and they were in a state of perpetual cloister. It's really hard for us to, you know, we've seen it all in the movies, but it's really, it was really quite something what they did. You have to bear in mind that the Catholic Church had this tremendous power, and there was this just sort of this huge force once you were consecrated to God as a nun. You know, it was just not something you could turn your back on easily in uh, the, the life of... Uh, Sister Claire of St. Francis, she wanted to go into the convent against the wish of her parents. So she, you know, Francis helped her sneak out at night and um, she was determined to stay there. And then finally she cut her hair. And sort of once she cut her hair, it was a symbol really of giving herself to God. And, And they were, people were really afraid to go against that in a way that in our rather sort of free in-and-out culture where we work more with the energy than the form of things. So people will do one thing for a while and another thing for a while, and there may be some stigma attached to it, but especially nowadays, there's almost no stigma attached to anything. Whereas 
centuries ago when Kali Yuga was really solid, you know, the form of things was tremendous. You didn't, once you stepped inside the convent, you just didn't come out. And, and, and it was very frightening to come out because you could be excommunicated or condemned to hell forever. I mean, it was a really big deal. So, um, and they lived very cloistered. They were just completely separated, uh, m- most of them. I don't know if there were working orders at that time or not. But, but St. Teresa's nuns, they went into the cloister and that was that. They didn't come out and they just lived the same life. I remember when I was living as, an, at a, as a nun at Ananda village in the 70s. And of course, we were, we were a group of women who lived together. We had a monastic life together. But of course, it was, very, it was also very free and we really didn't know where it was going. And in the end, most of us left that life anyway. But uh, I remember thinking that if I had joined a traditional Catholic order, which was the only order I could think of at that time, I would have been able to stand there and know exactly what I would be doing 50 years from that day. On each day, I would have been able to predict. And, and on one hand, I, I thought, this is like when I'm 25 years old. On one hand, I thought, what a wonderful situation to be in. Where you, where, where you just, the rhythm of your life is completely laid in front of you and, and really all you have to do is just keep the right consciousness. All those decisions, all those changes are just taken away from you. And it could be, it, it could lead to mediocrity, but it could also liberate you for greatness. Um, and then I thought by contrast, of course, that I had no idea what was going to happen the next day in the life that I was living. I wondered to myself, you know, whether or not I even could have made that kind of commitment. It wasn't a choice, so I didn't have to. So anyway, going back to, to Mother Teresa's nuns, and my, the point I'm going to make is so small, but I'm still going to make it. So those 12 nuns, she, she would appoint a mother superior, and then they would choose 12 nuns, and they would just be in there for the rest of their lives. Teresa would say to the, the, the mother of each new order, great care must be taken in the selection of those women. I mean, imagine, oy, 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 there you are forever. And she said, above all, look for common sense. She said, even devotion can be acquired. <laughs> but if they don't have common sense, they, they won't be able to live successfully in this environment. Now, what made me think of that is, there's a statement, you know. Jean says that someone told him that Ramakrishna said that grace is only a sport of God's. And then all of a sudden, this man, Gene Haupt, I believe he was a German. He was either from Germany or of German tradition. And he had the Germanic attitude of willpower. And, and elsewhere, I believe it's in the path. Swami talks about how Gene's overemphasis on willpower and insufficient understanding of attunement and devotion caused him eventually to go off the path. Um, and he talked about Jean one weekend meditated, I think he said, for 40 hours straight. And then commented afterwards that it was just like 40 minutes that it just sailed past. Speaking of the Germanic temperament, Swamiji says he's taught energization all over the world. And you tell everyone, you know, to tense as hard as you can. He said, except in Germany, you never say that. 
<laughs> because they'll tense so hard they'll hurt themselves. <laughs> so you have to stop them before they can use all that willpower. So, so you know, cultural temperaments, as we've talked about, are very different. I, I always kept that in mind. Not that I've, I've never gone to teach in Germany, but if I ever do, in any case. But he was that kind of a man. And so there's a little bit of a nuance here where he was using his willpower to try to attain realization. So when someone said, well, it's just random, God just will do it or not do it, it hit him particularly hard because the premise he was operating on, the premise he was operating on was what you would call a Vaishya premise. And, and it's a really subtle thing on the spiritual path. Vaishya is the second caste above the Shudra, the peasant caste. The Vaishya has creative energy. He uses his willpower, but his mindset, Vaishya means merchant, his mindset is that the spiritual life is a trade. I do this, and then I get that. I do so many Kriyas, I get this much realization. I behave properly, and God takes care of me. And it's not a terrible way to think. It's better than a sense of uh, exalted entitlement, where everything is supposed to come without effort. But if you translate that, because our relationship with God is, I mean, let me phrase it differently, all our relationships with other people are a mirror, are a practice session for the the highest, purest kind of relationship we can have, which is with the divine. So if you're in a relationship with a friend or a, a, a beloved, it's better at least that they trade with you than that they just take from you. But a, a love relationship that's based on, well, I did, it, I, I did something for you yesterday, so now I'm waiting for you to do something for me today, is certainly not as uplifting as a relationship where one just wants to give and doesn't keep track. And sort of it just depends. People progress to being vicious. They progress to the point where at least they're willing to trade. But in our relationship with God if we begin to think that this is a trade and that you owe me, um, it's, that's not the kind of self-offering that really draws really deep and beautiful love to us. We know that. We know that from human life. You don't have to feel confused about that question. It's just self-evident. And the kshatriya, which comes after it, is when we are moved by idealism, that our loyalty is to the ideal, and we discipline ourselves to our highest ideal rather than, than measuring. We don't weigh and measure anymore. We say, this is dharma, this is right, this is what I do. So in the devotee that translates to say, I've, I've taken a vow of discipleship, I've taken a vow of kriya, I've committed myself to the spiritual path, and now I will do my very best to follow this path. And the satisfaction is the self-mastery and the satisfaction is well, having a clear conscience. Swamiji, you know, there's a lot of uh, popular uh, psychology about, this was especially really rampant a few decades ago. It's probably still out there, but I just don't know it. But it was all coming up new in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, and a whole lot about self-acceptance. And it was basically, um, Swami talked about going to this New Age conference and the teacher had everybody wrap their arms around themselves and say, I love myself like this. <laughs> Swami, had, Swami was courteous in the moment, but rude in private. 
and he said something, and I, but I actually think he also stood up to the crowd. He said, but there's a great many things about us that are not at all lovable. He said, that's just a fact. You know, just we're all filled with weaknesses and things that we, we, we really don't want to love. Now, the opposite of that is not to condemn ourselves. And then Swami just made the very simple statement, which was so powerful. He said the only way, and then he talked about self-acceptance. He said the only way to self-acceptance is to have a clear conscience. And I, I really thought about that a lot. It's a really, you know, you, you, can't, you can't fool yourself because we know who we're intended to be. And if we're not living up to the ideal, and I'm, I mean, this is, this is predicated on basic psychological health. And so, because the people will raise exceptions, but it's predicated on basic psychological health. If you don't have basic psychological health, you have to backfill. You have to do a little remedial work to get yourself to the point where you're, you're basically a healthy person. And then, sometimes people who have some really fundamentally unresolved um, issues of self-worth or self-acceptance or trauma or so on, intuitively know that this is going to be a really tough cycle, so they try to skip it. <laughs> and they, they hear that you can just offer yourself to God, so they do. <laughs> but they don't actually, the word I would use is they don't actually own themselves because they're owned by this whole cauldron of, of, of and what makes it, what makes them unowned is not the lack of resolution, but the fear of facing it. Because in the end, my own personal belief is we never actually get any better, we just stop caring. But in a positive way, it just becomes unimportant. My own little story just isn't important to me anymore. I mean, that's just my theory, and it's not really a true one. Because once it becomes unimportant, it also resolves. It just, you, you stop making yourself into this reality, but that's, that's easy to say and not easy to do. Okay, so now let me just think where we were. Um, oh, this was the Vaisha Kshatriya. So, to have a clear conscience is to be living for ideals and to do your best. And part of having a clear conscience is that you know you're doing your best. It doesn't mean you're doing it perfectly, but you know that you're sincere and you're just doing your best. That's just all you can do. But more kid, as Swami says, even God doesn't ask more of that. He knows, he knows our delusions and He knows our limitations. And when we're operating sincerely within the context of what's possible for us, that's the best we can do. And then you have a clear conscience because you know you're, you're there. And if that's doing your kriyas only half the time, well, that's just doing your kriyas only half the time. If you could be better, you would be better. If I could have done better, I would have done better. That was my mantra for a while. Okay, so we come down to Jean saying this to Master and then becoming really discouraged. See, part of what the problem here is that Jean Halp lacks common sense. Because it's just like, how could you just have someone tell you that Ramakrishna said that God is completely random and then have it become a crisis for you? First of all, the someone is not his guru, and actually Ramakrishna is not his guru either, even though Ramakrishna, of course, is a fully realized avatar, and his teachings ought to be taken seriously. But what, what Jean lacks is just simple common sense in all of this. And a very 
a very important part of the spiritual path, which I have a lot of common sense, and I've always had common sense, so I sort of know what this is. It's like, just because somebody says so doesn't make it true. If it's wacky, it's just wacky. When, um, and, and when you know it's wacky, or when you know it's undermining in some like colossal way, then you should be at least a little bit suspicious before you just dive into it. And common sense, Teresa said it can't be acquired, but it can be acquired, <laughs> or at least one can become more sensible. So, I mean, the first part of this, of course, Jean said this to Swamiji, who was the head monk, so at least he was trying to have an answer. He was trying to have an answer to it, and then Swami had to take it to Master because Swami himself was a little confused by it. When, when Swami writes in the path about how he first came to Master, and he read Autobiography of a Yogi, and then, you know, less than a week later, he was initiated as a disciple living as a monk, and he hadn't, he hadn't even heard of these concepts virtually a week before. He'd had a tiny bit of exposure, but almost none, really. And there he is. He's crossed the country. He's 22 years old. He's left everything behind. He's become the disciple of this master. He knows what he's doing, but it's all just completely topsy-turvy. He said sometimes he had to sit down. He said he would just get so dizzy with the magnitude of the changes he'd made. And, the, and of course, he was there with master, with just the energy that was all around him and coming. But because he was so new to all of it, he just wasn't sure what was true and what wasn't. Because so everything about it was new. But when anybody would say anything, he, he, this is how he writes it in the path, he would always ask, did Master say that? Because, especially in those days at Mount Washington, it was very eclectic. Swami said, you know, it was a hotel. It was still a hotel. People were checking in and out, and the monks... The monks were never organized. They just lived their own lives in the way they wanted to. And until a year after Swami was there when Master put him in charge. So it was kind of a, a free-for-all. Free and people were eclectic and they didn't really know what they had in Master. So he heard a lot of things that were strange. That, so he would always say, did Master say that? But even then, Swami's words were, I followed Master unhesitatingly, but never unquestioningly. And it's a really, it's a beautiful balance because that says you've got to stay involved in it. You don't hesitate to, to, to be involved and try to understand, but you have to understand. And so if, if Master said it, he, you know, he would at least try to absorb it, even if it was really strange. But if he didn't, he just didn't, he didn't feel he had to relate to it. He was on one path. So the first part of this whole thing is what happens if something comes to you that doesn't make any sense. And, and oftentimes, certainly in my years with Ananda, well, devotees say the darndest things. <laughs> and, and someone perhaps of goodwill, or, or I should say well-intentioned, will yet deliver a garbled message. Or will deliver a message that is a personal truth, but not an appropriate truth for the person they deliver it to. And that's even trickier because it works for me, and so I'm going to tell you this is what it is. I, in, by now, because Ananda's going to celebrate its 50th birthday um, next summer, I've watched a whole generation of people be born and grow up in our community, and many of them have come back. Some of them have come back in a smooth transition, 
and others have had to sort of try to figure out whether this is whether I'm a, whether this is really mine or was this was just my parents and I'm habituated to it. Um, and I realized when I was talking to one particular, um, I call them six forty twos, because in the Bhagavad Gita it says if you try for God realization and you don't make it, then you you have the very good karma to be born into a family of yogis. And such births are very difficult to attain because yogis tend that a lot of yogis don't have children. And that's verse 642 of the Gita. <laughs> I was trying to find a name for them. So I call them 642s. Nobody else does, but I do. <laughs> I hope I have that number right, but I'm pretty sure I do. But anyway, I was talking to a 642. And I realized when the person was describing their dilemma to me, because I knew, of course... I knew them before they were born. I knew their parents and, and, you know, we all know a lot about each other. But what I was listening was I was listening to the, the, the offspring describe to me their parents' interpretation of the spiritual path. Which, it wasn't wrong, but it wasn't really applicable to the offspring. Because they're just a different person. It's a whole reality. That was the first time it occurred to me. And I, I finally said, oh, actually... You don't really know very much about Ananda. What you know is what your parents did, which was good, but it's not your life at all. Different generation, different realities, different personalities. So even when somebody who ought to know, you have to also use your common sense. And and the other half of that common sense is you have to trust yourself enough, but not too much. You have to trust yourself enough to think, if I think something is a little odd here, I should try to explore it, not if I think something is a little odd here, I need to wall everyone else off and decide that I'm right. It's just like, I think I better explore this. I, I was fortunate to grow up. I grew up with Jyot- spiritually. I grew up with Jyotish. I grew up with Seva. I grew up with Devi. I grew up with Jaya, with Sadhana Devi. I grew up with a lot of, and Prakash, you know, people who were, who were really astute, and then, of course, there was always Swamiji, too. But I made it a real, a real policy, not merely to say, what should I do? But to say, this is what I'm thinking. Is it wacky? Because a lot of times it was really wacky. And it wasn't even just that somebody would correct me. It's that if I just said, look, this is how I'm thinking it out. Am I making a mistake here? And, and it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a... It was really sincere because my aspiration was to, for truth. I didn't just want to run my own story. That didn't mean I always believed what people told me or agreed with what they told me. But I would really try to find out, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm going in the right direction. And see, what that did for me was that I began to be able to feel when I was right. And that's how I learned to be able to tell the difference between something that sounds good or that I'm strongly emotionally biased toward and something that's actually following the right thread is I put it, I mean, I had, you know, a half dozen people in my life. Of course, Swamiji was one of them, but he was not the only one. There were people that I just over time knew and, they, and I knew like, uh, you know, Jyotish had certain kinds of answers, Seva had certain kind of answers, Prakash had certain kind of answers, there's certain kind of issues 
that, you know, Seva couldn't answer for me some complicated philosophical question, but she could give me a really clear answer about myself and my emotional self. And she wouldn't give me a big intellectual answer. She would just look at me and know what was right, and she would say it. And I got attuned to listen to her. If I was really caught on some point of the teachings, I would ask Jyotisha Prakash. And then they would run it with me, and they were very well-versed. But that, and, and that was how I learned. I mean, I'm saying this, I realize this is very important, because sometimes I think that I learned everything because of Swami, but that's not really true. I took, I took tremendous advantage of my community. And so, if something weird happened, there were quite a few people I could go to and say, help me with this. Like, how does this really fit together? I read in a book that so-and-so, is that really true? And then, over time, what happens is, well, what, over time what happens is twofold. You begin to, to recognize the feeling of what it is when you're in tune. And I don't just mean a big intuitive feeling. It's, it's even smaller than that. It's just you begin to, con- begin to get the consistent thread that is these teachings. And so when something doesn't match it, you notice because you, you're used to knowing what the consistent thread is. And then there's also a kind of intuitive feeling that, that everything, you know, intuition isn't just um, non-rational. And intuition is not just functioning outside of the intellect or outside of common sense. I mean, Swami, Swami explained that to us once. You know, the, if your inclination, um, well, actually it's true for everyone, but intuition functions through all your mediums of knowing. Every, every aspect of knowing can be elevated to a superconscious level. So I have a, a particular passion for clear thought and, and having a clear mind. And I've certainly found that it's extremely helpful because sometimes you don't have an intuitive flash or your intuitive flash is not super conscious. So if you have a fallback position of, of reason, and then reason can be in, intuitively inspired. You know, you can reason in all kinds of directions, but you can get that when... And, and I guess I would put it like this, and I'll use an extreme example. Um, I, 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 I put this all in the past tense because I've just finished another 12-year cycle, so I feel like a lot of things that used to be me have finally just gone away, which is very nice, but I used to be very nervous and I used to really need to have things my way. And uh, I, I wasn't controlling, because it wasn't like I needed everybody to do it my way, but if it was my world, I needed to have it my way, in my little tiny sphere. And I would get quite anxious if I felt that something I felt was required wasn't being given to me. And I, I called it my panic survival response, where I would just get the impression that my life was at stake even though my life wasn't at all at stake. You know, we were just having a conversation about lunch or something. You know, it would, it, that's, that's naive, but it would be like things that I was, usually it was projects, creative projects. If, I'm doing a, if I was doing a creative project, I, I needed to be able to do it my way. And if I got thwarted or I didn't get cooperation, sometimes I'd just go into panic survival response. And as a result, my 
physiology would change and the sound of my voice would change and the speed of my talking would change. And I began to recognize that if any of those symptoms are there, everything else that's coming after is not right. And that's what I mean about getting an intuitive feeling about reason. Even if I wasn't all the way, I'm using an extreme example, even if I wasn't all the way to panic survival response, I began to sort of see its, its lesser forms. And when I would reason with that kind of consciousness, I could pretty much depend on the fact that my reason would mislead me. So what I'm trying to say is when you hold your thoughts up to people whose impersonal wisdom you grow to trust, you can even just begin to tell before you ask the question how likely you are to be centered, even if you, if you don't know it. Does that all make sense? It's all very, very important. And that's what Master is addressing here. But that's ridiculous. Ramakrishna would never say anything like that. You know, what true master would ever say that God is random? Well, if you're very Vaishya, it's going to really scare you, and it really scared Jean. But Master then goes on to say, you know, that's what happens when lesser people try to interpret these teachings. And, and part of it is, you know, another part of it is, it's very important, this is where attunement to the path you've chosen becomes important. I en- really enjoy reading the lives of saints because I like to read for relaxation. So I used to read novels and then I was reading historical biographies, especially when I was in seclusion writing. I still wanted to read for relaxation, but I didn't want to bring anything uh, downward moving into my vibration. I just needed to stay really. So I actually have been reading a lot of books about Ramakrishna as it happens just because there are a lot of books. But I would read, I've read about Ananda Moima and other saints. But it's interesting. Whenever I get into their teachings, I just skip it. Because I think, I don't need this. All I want to feel is the inspiration of their presence. I don't really want to hear their theory about this or their theory about that. In the Ramakrishna books, there's not that much of it. But in others, there are. But it's almost like, I don't need that because this is what I know. And I don't necessarily feel it's going to confuse me anymore. But I don't really, really want it. So there's also that part of it, like Swami saying to, to the other disciples, did Master say that? And whenever in the past I've heard any spiritual teaching, I always ask, who said it? And somehow people will bring me ideas as if the idea could stand alone. But an idea that's, especially one that's odd, it can, to my mind, it can never stand alone. The question is, who said it? Because we can't, if, if lots of things could sound good to it to us, but what is the lineage? What's the line behind this? Because then I can tell whether or not it's, well, and of course, if Ramakrishna said it, but then you have to say, how could Ramakrishna say anything like that? And that's what Master's response is here. So there's a lot in there. And he was indignant at the suggestion, Ramakrishna would never have said that, This is what happens when unenlightened people try to interpret the scriptures and the teachings of the masters. And then he says, God is no creature of whims. And then he talks about God makes the divine law and he's going to act within it. But you see, what what this also comes down to for all of us is do we really believe that we are loved by God 
that life is fair, and that Divine Mother is really going to take care of us? Or do we think there's some loophole here that applies only to me? That everybody's loved by God, everybody will be taken care of, and I won't. <laughs> okay, did you have a question on that, Sneha? Just had a comment. Okay. Um, when my mind plays tricks with me and I feel the amount of effort I'm putting into my devotion, my, my sadhana, or in, in my service, uh, in, um, and I feel I'm not getting something in return, or if, if I see that others are getting more than I am, um, I always remember the story where um, Swami uh, Yukteswar would be really harsh with Master. And, and he would be favorable to Kumar. Mm-hmm. And I would think, well, Master, maybe from the outside it might look like I'm not getting something, and that I should not judge my outcomes uh, in the minutes, and, and, and I shouldn't worry about, not think about it. Not that it's the right attitude in that moment, but at least it helps me from not veering too far away from, yeah. uh, you know, don't let that thought take me away too far. You know, when you have a wrong direction of your thinking, Anything that works is what you ought to do. <laughs> I mean, anything short of fearful su- suppression. Fearful suppression does not work. But any just almost mental game you can play that'll, that'll get you out of that vibration is worth doing. And just, just like that. Yes, what were you going to say? There's that story where Master was to bring uh, you. Swami Yukteswar a drink and he trips and he falls well, he, tripped, he didn't fall but he tripped he over the rug he trips yeah. over uh, the rug and uh-huh. uh, Swami turns around and he says you owe for he, he really yeah. rebukes master and belittles him and I think if, if ever that were to happen to me how would I respond mm-hmm. would I still think that master has my best interest and I always think that I always keep myself prepared uh, in situations like that right. exactly I, um, I was saying to some people this morning, um, let's see, um, when Brian McSweeney was traveling with Swamiji, videoing his programs, every once in a while he just ran the camera for informal occasions, which is, you know, of course is a real treasure. And uh, his wife, Rachel, was both, they have new spiritual names. They're Aryavan and Nishani now, so that's why I'm sort of, I want you to know who I'm talking about, but. I'm learning to call them by their new names. Anyway, um, she was reviewing some of that footage and she said there was a, she found this footage where uh, Swamiji was sitting there and he was doing something. She wasn't sure what he was doing, just some small thing off to the side, whether he was drawing or writing or, and I mean, like a cup of tea or something. Just there was a little bit of business over here. Simultaneously, there's an off-camera voice of a woman and she's very upset about a lot of things that are happening in her life. And she's just sort of talking about, I don't know what the whole details were, but it's a, it's a, it's a litany of, you know, this terrible thing and this is suffering and why like this. And, and Ishani said that Swami just kind of goes, just, you know, just like doing like this, like this. If it's happening to you, it's good for you. <laughs> just, he just says, if it's happening to you, it's good for you. And I mean, he didn't, he didn't, give it to her like that because she probably couldn't have handled it. But he just very casually said, well, if it's happening to you, it's, it's good for you. <laughs> Ishani said whoever was talking did not, you know, did not register 
but just kept going like that. But I, I just loved that thought. If it's happening to you, it's good for you. But that's not simple. And we're talking, in our lives, we're talking about a mood, a little upset. You know, I started to watch some film that I found, which was about a woman, a Romanian woman who was imprisoned under communism. I watched it for about five minutes and I thought, no, I'm not going to watch this. But I liked it because it was about how powerful her faith became. The actual name of the little film was called Bless Prison because she said, you know, prison made me love God. It wasn't even like, you know, I endured it. It was, I'm so grateful for it because I would never have become, And but I, I couldn't get past everything that started to get, maybe I'll try to go back and skip to the end because I love stories like that. But, that, you know, too often when they film them, if you read them, you just imagine it. When they film them, then they spend so much time making you sure that you know how much these people suffered that, I remember it way too long. I can read it, but I can't see it. But the end point was, oh, if it's happening for me, to me it's good for me. But you see how much faith you have to have? You have to have faith in everything in order to be able to come to that. But that is the final answer. And the more, as we've talked about before, this was Hari, this is Haridasa's acronym, Spy Dog, Solve Problems in the Direction of God. You can, you can solve your upset by watching a movie, having a pizza, going out with your friends, reading a novel, and then, you know, it'll shift and you won't feel it anymore. And sometimes that's a good strategy. You know, I always, <laughs> I always, go, there's like this, like this, the way to solve every problem is by absolute faith in the perfect love of God with a Christ-like attitude of perfect forgiveness. Oops, not an option. <laughs> The other way is to just get so mad and pack my bags and drive off in the middle of the night and go get a job and make lots of money. Not really. I don't really want to do that. So I'll bring this one up and this one down and then I'll try again until I can be more than my worst, but perhaps, well, I would call this my best, but less than the possible best. But the more you can resolve every issue by moving your attention toward the divine, could this be happening outside the will of God? And if you think maybe, maybe it is, then you have to find something else that will work for you because it doesn't serve, um, we used to call that true but irrelevant. <laughs> true but irrelevant spiritual advice. And people would say, well, just be detached. I remember someone said that to me when I was really upset about something. Just be detached. I said, I meant if I could be detached, I wouldn't be so upset. You know, it's like, what is the point of saying that to me? I know that. Who are you talking to? I mean, that's what I mean by, it doesn't always help, but as, as high as you can go. Okay, this is bad karma. Bad karma in the sense that somehow I set up, a, I, I threw a boomerang out a long time ago, and now it's hit me in the head. And it's really unpleasant, but... It wouldn't have happened because God doesn't act, act, act outside his own law. It's a very tough teaching. And it, it's helpful to just say that out loud, you know, because it, there is no, no exceptions and no wiggle room at all zero. So you have to kind of sometimes just adjust it a little. I remember once I was asked to do something I really didn't want to do. 
and I was really agitated about it. And so someone who was with me said, you don't have to do it, you don't have to do it. I said, yes, I do. If I had a choice, I wouldn't be so angry (laughs) because I knew that I was going to have to do it because it was the right thing to do, but I sure as heck did not want to. So that's how I balanced it. You know, my worst would be to say, no, no, I refuse. My best would to say, oh, if it's happening to me, it must be good for me. So my in-between was to have a temper tantrum, knowing when it was over, I would gather myself together and just face it. You know, this, this, is, this is what I mean about, but I was still facing the right way. When you really face the wrong way, then even then, there's always a better and a worse. Yeah, I'm not going to pack all my belongings. I'm just going to pack half of them. You know, I'm not really going to rent a new apartment. I'm just going to go away for a month. You know, or, but just there's always a better and a worse. And as long as you stay at the upper end, um, it'll work for you eventually. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe with with no capability to. Um, migrate automatically and easily to the higher path as long as you acknowledge that uh, what's happening here is God's will. That in itself can be valuable. At least it can be to me. Yeah, Yeah. sure. Because it always is. Yeah. If it's happening happening to you, it's good for you. I I love to say it like that. If it's happening to you, it's good for you. What do you know? Golly shucks. Okay, any more about that part of this? Because um, let's pass this over. Well, I've been trying to say with things like that is, Master, what do you want me to learn from this? Mm-hmm. That helps me. That makes it a little easier. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I, you've all heard me say, that became my prayer for my parents at the end of their lives when they were going through the disintegrating cycle of age because it was very distressing to me for a long time. So I started saying to Master, whatever it is you're trying to teach them, uh, you need to get on with it, because this is, really, this is really tough. And then I would pray that they would be able to learn whatever it was God wanted them to learn. That prayer really worked. I think it worked for them, and it certainly worked for me. I made it more specific. Give them the receptivity, devotion, and wisdom to learn whatever it is they're supposed to be learning. Because because why would I not want them to learn? Because I would prefer that they not suffer. I would prefer that I not be inconvenienced. I mean, it was as much about me as it was about them. But why would I really want that? I mean, that's a very interesting thought. You know, this woman who goes to the prison, who in the end of it becomes just powerful in her faith and freely admits that it would never have come to her if she hadn't gone through that. My own mother, who went through 15 years of Parkinson's and sort of said kind of like this, you know, this disease has been the making of me, I hate to admit it. And it was the truth. You know, it gave her willpower and determination and discipline, qualities that she really needed, that I don't, do not believe they would ever have come to her in any other way. So, like, was it a good thing or a bad thing that happened to her? Your mind gets really confused. It was an unpleasant thing. But even, is it unpleasant? Is it unpleasant to be challenged? To be asked to rise above what you're comfortable with? I mean, every part of us wants to say, yes, it's, no, it's not good, it's not good. But this is what I mean about having a clear mind. I don't mean that you have to be a brilliant articulator 
of the teaching because, I mean, that's, some people have that. It's just like some people can handle money, some people can sing, some people can paint. It's just everybody has different things. And some people are simple serving devotees with no particular notable, you know, accelerated talents. But that doesn't mean they're not highly advanced. I mean, none of that makes any difference. But, um, let's see, what was the, where was the thought? Oh, yes. But one needs to be clear in one's, you can be clear in your heart. You don't have to be clear in your mind. Heart is even more important. But just, really, what is true? Recently, our, one of our, uh, uh, let me think how to, how to tell this. Recently, a young person, a younger person, who just, you know, not on our path, just a, a teenager, was sort of made the announcement that they were an agnostic or an atheist or whatever it was that they announced. And an older, wiser person, who knew them well, sort of thought about it, you know, was thoughtful for a moment, and said, you know, I think perhaps they, they announced they were an agnostic. And, and the older person said, you know, I actually don't think you're an agnostic. I think you're a truth seeker. And you just don't yet know what's true. Maybe they took it all the way to atheism, I'm not sure. But the young person thought, yeah, that's really the right way to say it. So that's what we're trying to be, is we're trying to be truth seekers. I mean, we're trying to be devotees, but we want to be true devotees. We don't want to just pretend. That's, That's where the clarity of mind comes. I don't want to get confused about what I'm really doing. And so praying for that is really worth praying for, to just be clear-minded about and not confused. And that's where conversation with people who you have reason to believe have more, have, may have more clarity, or at least have equal clarity, but are less personally involved, is a very, very helpful. And that's what community does for us. You know, we're not isolated somewhere where we just have to figure it out ourselves. I've said on many occasions, if God can talk to you, he can also talk to someone else about you. You know, it's like the whole conversation doesn't necessarily happen within ourselves, especially not because we're so close to ourselves. We just, you know, you can't even, you can't even tell what's good for you because our point of view is so inculcated in us. When I, there's three children in my family and there have been various spouses and one grandchild and the whole cycle of things. So after we reached a certain stage of adulthood, Oftentimes, the family unit was not the same as the original family unit. But there was just, there was one particular occasion where the the original five, the biological five, two parents and three children, were all together in a house where we had all lived together. At, at, you know, my 30s or 40s, I was a full-grown, established Ananda adult. But it was incredible to me this sort of, the only thing I can call it is this subconscious rhythm. It was almost like a a pulse in the house in which I felt all of us, all of us just falling into this subconscious pulse. Because of course, as children, your whole being is so just wide open. You're just taking everything in. So you grow up with these, quite apart from even psychology, you just grow up with this uh, familiarity with this certain thing and because it had been so many years since I had stepped into the full thing 
it just, it was perfectly pleasant. I had a very pleasant childhood, so it wasn't like it was frightening, but it was so powerful. And I realized even at that point how, how, how much of my way of what I thought was the way things are was completely arbitrary, just completely based on all that subconscious conditioning. And I mean, it, it was a tremendous incentive to try to get a clear mind and get conscious about where things were coming from instead of just thinking this is the way it is and panicking if the way it is is threatened. You know, like where does, who's threatening what? I mean, like where is it coming from? Why would it matter if my little reality gets interrupted by somebody else's little reality? Like what difference does it make? Does that make sense? Big deal. Those of you who've raised children, you know, it's also, you've, you probably, you've seen it from the other side. I've never raised children, so I don't know. But I'm sure it's quite a story from that side, too. You want a, the microphone, okay? So you talked about in the beginning, um, and I've been thinking about it all this past few minutes, uh, about staying true to your ideals. Uh-huh. And... So on one hand, we have the mentality that there has to be something in return that we need to get for the doing something. Attitude. On the other hand, we have the ideal, the staying true to our ideal uh, intention. Uh, but what if you are not able to stay true to your ideal? Then where do you, where do you, I mean, what do you think of uh, yourself as in the path? And how do you, how do you, keep that faith in that, yes, maybe I'm not staying true to my ideals, but I still hold on to them without still, without being able to stay true to them and sort of maybe one day will stay true to them. Well, there's several answers to that question. One thing is, one, sometimes, okay, sometimes we mature in understanding how that ideal is actually expressed. I feel in my own life, I've been very true to my ideals, but I've, it's been a very growing process to understand what, what the truth really is. So sometimes when we slip away from what we think is our aspiration, it's really because we're, we're learning a more subtle expression of it, and it may not actually be a slip from it, it just may be a maturation of that understanding. For example, there was a woman, I'll just use this, and I don't think it relates to you, but there was a woman who when she first came here, like, her, her, her religion was ecology. And it was, became a joke between us, but recycling was really important to her. And it, it sounds small, but it wasn't small for her. It was really, as far as she'd been able to understand her responsibility to the earth and so on was was her principle. And then she came into an environment in which we were throwing away the plastic forks all the time. You know, and it just, it was very upsetting to her. Now, in fact, we shouldn't throw away the plastic forks. But there's, a, there's other ideals. So sometimes you're not really failing, you're just having to learn it in a new way. That's, that's one answer to what you're saying. So one should be open to that. I feel that I've been able to be loyal to my ideals from being two years old to the present moment, but they have 
the form of them has has changed. So I, I you know, I, I would no longer go spend the night in the Stanford Administration Building to object to the Vietnam War, you know, even though I did. I wouldn't be inclined that way because now I understand what I was trying to accomplish and I see that there's other ways to try to accomplish it. What am I really trying to accomplish, not what was I doing? Okay, that's one. The other side of it is, there is absolutely, it is absolutely the given that we will fail a million times before we stop failing. And one of our ideals has to be the realization, seriously, that, um, that all growth is directional rather than absolute. So the only way you can actually fail, the only way you can fail is to, is to decide that it's unattainable or it's not worth attaining. But the fact that you, you make a mockery of yourself in your supposed commitment to it is like, welcome to the human race. And that's just really an awful fact. Swami had a wonderful phrase, which he said, a slip is not a fall. And the only way to fail is to declare that I have failed and therefore I'm not going to aspire anymore. I mean, you can even decide, guess what? I'm taking the rest of this incarnation off. (laughs) But you still know that when you're done pretending that you're not going to do it, you're going to do it. And that the rigidity with which people are determined to succeed causes much more failure. It's almost a guaranteed failure because it's so unrealistic. And then when you crash, you've set up this whole universe in which to crash is to fail. Whereas to crash is merely to crash. You know, to fail is to not believe in your aspirations anymore. You can even decide that I'm not going to succeed at them, but success is possible. But that's, it's, not, it's not good. It's just not yet. The word is simply not yet. But as Swami said, we are much more, we are, we are defined not by where we are now, because the way he put it is, by the time anything actually happens, by definition, it's already done and finished. You know, I've just answered your question, and now that's behind us, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's right here in this room, but it's not happening anymore. It's over. So by the time you crash and burn in whatever new creative way you've discovered to do it, or for the hundredth time you break your resolution and you go off and do whatever it was that you absolutely swore you'd never do again, and lo and behold, there you are, by the time you've done it, it's already behind you. So you really aren't even that anymore because it's over. So the only thing you are is where you're trying to go because that's your trajectory. That's really the flow of energy, even where you hope someday to go because it's your flow of energy. And, and those are, I call those mental tricks, but that's not a mental trick. That's the truth. But, but a thought like that you, you, you get a very clear mind about it and you realize that, that this is the truth of it. So, as Swamiji also put it, 
It's, it's, it's bad enough. It's sufficient unto the day that you've had, you, you hope to do better than you did. That's enough. You don't have to now create, as he called it, a huge complex on top of that. Because the, the complex actually becomes much more of a problem than the mere fact that for the 110th time you've made a resolution and haven't lived up to it. Okay, does that help? And I, I know whereof I speak. You know, I've been like more than, f- like 45 years I've been doing this. And I know this works. I, I mean, sort of like I have this passion now for saying to people, oh, it works, guess what? It works, it works. Just keep at it. It's like I was speaking to one of my, you know, my identical peer in exactly the same year that I'm, I was born. And we were both saying to each other, what do you know? You know, it just works. And I, I believe, I've always believed it works. And I have had enough experiences before this minute. But, you know, at the end of Swamiji's life, when, when really he just took down all the veils, and he would just say things like, don't people understand that it just all ends in bliss? You know, and he would just go into these states and all the suffering and all the struggling. Don't people understand? It just Can't they just see it all ends in bliss? And of course, I'm not like him. I'm definitely not there. But I got that much of it. You know, it's like, oh, I can see. Look, it really works. I have that same, I have as much enthusiasm, but I don't have as much power. But I, I get what he was doing. You know, he was, because so much of his life was this responsibility he had to carry out. So even though he, he always had a, a blissful dimension, he, he had to, uh, to a certain extent, he had to put it aside because he had to use a different part of himself. But when it was done, when he, when he, it started sooner, but when he finished the Gita commentary, which was the great un, unfinished task of his lifetime, when he finished, because that was the one that was like, how am I ever going to do this? It was like 2006, I think. And when he did that one, it was just like, you know. So he, he was able to just completely drop the whole persona. And that was when he began to say, can't people just see? Don't they just know? Anyway, all right, let's take a brief break. Yes, we're talking about okay, the Festival so of Light on Sunday mornings. So uh-huh. what, what I've noticed is that sometimes when you'll be saying it, you'll, you'll slow down and you'll say, because you are a part of all that is. <laughs> so I'm not, my thought process is not as hidden as I think it is. I was saying before the microphone was turned on that sometimes when I, I do the festival on Sundays, I, I just hear something in it. I mean, I've been doing this, not every Sunday, but many Sundays for whatever, since 1987. So that's a long time. But sometimes I'll just hear something I've never heard before and I, I'll want to stop everything. So it also came up, what are we going to do when we finally finish this book? And I'm going to do a session on the Festival of Light. I mean, not one, but do a series. God knows how long it'll take. But it's a very important part of our path. And, uh, you know, it, it's not always easy. It's in certain ways, of course, well, I, I wouldn't say that's true because when I sit in the congregation, I also hear it really vividly. Of course, when you're having, to, when you get to stand closer to the altar, which is how I define my job, 
I'm the one who gets to sit closer to the altar. It does create a certain flow of energy, which is different. But uh, it's also just a matter of, you know, uh, I'm just digressing here, but when Swami created it, he also spoke a lot about the power of ritual. He said, you know, just not a lot, but just a little, because it influences the subconscious mind. You just, when you, when you hear these things and repeat them over and over again, because the path is not, is not complicated. It can be reduced, God is love, that's all you have to say. But you can think about that for a lifetime and you can talk about it for many lifetimes. It just goes forever. And then what happens is we, as we ratchet up a little bit in our, when we extricate ourselves from our delusion and rise a little bit more into the light, Somebody will just say something to you that was just so, seems so small, but all of a sudden it's not small at all because you actually walk through the doorway of, of whatever it is. I remember once when, uh, let me think how this was. Oh, uh, Shivani, who's my, my peer, so to speak, when we both lived together in, at... Uh, Ananda village in the very early years and now she's been in Assisi for the, as long as I've been in Palo Alto. She's a founding member of that community. Very, very strong person. And I remember once she took a seclusion and when she came out of seclusion she said to me, she just said, Asha, if you pray to God, he'll answer. And I answered her flippantly. I said, Shivani, I mean, this is like a pretty basic idea. This is the fruit of your whole seclusion. But she got super serious with me. She said, no, if you pray to God, he will answer. And it was like, oh, yeah. I mean, she knew it. I mean, we'd both been able to say it. But when she said it, it was a wholly different thing than when we, we said it otherwise. So that's sort of when you have God-inspired ideas that just go through your mind repeatedly, then every so often you actually understand them. <laughs> and then it puts you like, it's, it's like a, you know, like the climbing walls? When you actually, I've never done one, but I've seen pictures. You, you know, you, you go from here to here, and then when, you, when you're secure here, you let go of here, and then you're actually somewhere else on the wall, and you've shifted, everything has shifted. That's kind of what the spiritual path is. You're just, you're holding on to this one. That's the same question you asked about the ideals. You're holding on to this one, and you, you know, you've kind of got a grip here, but you're not ready to let go of this, and then the moment comes when you can go like that. And the, but there's nothing wrong here. It's just that now something else is true. Which is why, to go to your question, you have no idea who's ahead of who. It's just completely impossible and you have no idea where you yourself are standing. You don't know if this is just the absolute last lifetime in which this is just going to be wrung out of you. You don't know whether you're at the beginning of, or the end of the karma. You don't know whether they're at the beginning or the end of it. You don't know what's... Unless, you're, unless you really have super conscious intuition, where you... Swamiji actually said, he said, just a flick of the eye and I can tell everything about a person. And he could, but I can't. <clears throat> I mean, I have a certain intuition, but it's just, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's embryonic compared to what a real master can see. 
So we just don't know. You know, just the best thing is just to love people and, and be on their side and root for them. And uh, I'll give another part of that. If you, if you yourself believe in people and, and actively, you know, trust that it's going to be okay for them, then in a, in a, a very real way, you continually create a universe in, in which you can trust that it's going to be okay. And then when it's your turn, you've created a universe in which that happens. But if you're, if you're constantly not believing and judging and worrying, then when it's your turn, you've created a universe in people in which it's always insecure. I mean, there's, there's two ways to practice. It was interesting because I remember... Mike, in the early 70s, a, a woman and I both had the same issue, which is that we were judgmental of other people. It, and I, none, to this day, I don't remember which, to, whom, to whom he said which. But to one of us, he said, stop judging others. And to the other, he said, stop judging yourself. <laughs> so it was like we, he, he told us to solve the problem in different ways. I think it was actually he told me to stop judging others because I think that's sort of the way I went. But... I realized that, you know, most of my self-torture was because I had created a universe in which everybody had to measure up. And so when it was my turn, I was completely paralyzed. When I first tried to write uh, the book I've just written about Swami and ended up writing the other book I've written about Swami, which was a good book, but a compromise from what I set out to do, I couldn't write it because I had been so critical for so long of my own and other people's efforts that I just created a universe in which creativity was impossible because it was never good enough. It took me three years to just get through it and then I finally got, oh, I've created a universe and now it was, you know, it was everything, if it's happening to you, it's good for you, you know. I'd send out the boomerang and then when I needed, when I needed faith, in the possibility of success, I had created a universe in which it wasn't going to be. And then when, basically when I'd suffered enough, <laughs> it finally tipped. It sort of was just like one day it tipped. And people gave me the same advice they'd been giving me all along, but on that day I heard it. Just like that. So it was, it was very unpleasant when it happened. But I couldn't have learned in any other way, so there you have it. You know, you, re- you remember that. Well, this is also very unpleasant, you know. This is actually a living hell. But every time I've been here before, I've always come out someplace that I don't think I could have gotten. That's where that woman says, bless prison. You, you know, you just, that's where you, you keep a clear focus. And don't get too distracted by the details. Because the details are what I want, what happened, who did what to whom, how I feel, how I always feel this way. So my mother raised me, this is what distresses me. And and like, forever you can do that. And it's a little tiny bit helpful in this respect, at least for me. There's two two parts of this I could say. If I can get a clear concept, if I can say, oh gosh, that's what's happening. Like, this is what I said about creativity. I, I just, I had this weird relationship. Many critics are not good artists because they just always have a critical mind and they can't put it aside enough. 
But so when I got a clear concept, it really did help free me. So a certain amount of thinking, if it leads to a clear concept. But what I finally noticed was that the clear concept will come to me at the right moment. It'll pop into my head. I don't have to torture the situation looking for it. And, and that was a, an experience that I gradually got. And then the details of who, what, where, and why, I realized were not that interesting. It's like I can build that whole big reality, <laughs> but I'm still just going to have to get up in the morning and, and go and do what I have to do as cheerfully and as well as I can. And it's not made easier by this ongoing tape. And that, then I started using affirmations or whispers. I just started substituting one set of positive words for the whole story. And I realized that, and I'll give you one more part of this. And this is actually the end of this section that we're talking at, because what talking about, you know, God, uh, Satan is testing the organization. Help is not the only one. Oh, that's what the trouble has been. Yes, there's a force. And in that case, it was the end of Master's life, you see. I'll, I'll go over to here first. It was the end of Master's life. He, he knew he was, I mean, the whole book is the end of Master's life because Swamiji was there for the last three and a half years. And Master knew after he was gone, you know, he, he could hold it together. I mean, I, I saw Master was like that. I saw Swamiji was like that. Swamiji's magnetism, he could carry a lot of really different elements and still the whole thing could go forward. But, but Master knew that after he was gone, the same thing happened in Jesus' life. It happens in every great Master's life. That the core had to be more solid because it was going to have to carry on. And so if there were too many disparate elements and too many weak links, it just would have fallen to pieces. So of necessity, you know, the, the, those those who had gone as far as they could go needed to just go into their next reality. It wasn't Master being unkind to them. It was just he knew that without his presence, it, it wouldn't work for them. And in the life of Jesus, of course, they were really persecuted and attacked and they had to be solid together because if they weren't, if there were weak elements that were afraid and that were dissonant and were arguing in the middle, how could the disciples have ever held it? So at the end of a master's life, everything gets pushed in a certain way. It's very, it's sad, but not really. It's just the cycle of what's happening. So let's see. Wh- why did I bring that up? I was bringing up about, um, well, I can't quite remember I was, I, how, how to loop that one back because I was saying something else about um, my own mind and thinking about things, but Oh, I was talking about having a clear idea, just being very, uh, very clear about... I'm, I've, I've lost the thought, but anyway, that's enough. I think I said what I need to say. Yes? Just at the very beginning of that um, uh, multicolored uh, discussion of, on clarity and so forth, you mentioned it's just one of the circumstances uh, of your life is that, uh, well, people worry about um, how far along they are in the spiritual path, how they uh, 
measure up against others and all that kind of stuff. I just like to make the observation that it's really nice to stay away from that altogether. Sure. That's all. It's just out, being outcome-oriented is human nature, being insecure is human nature. But yeah, there's a lot of things that are unhealthy. But Oh, I know what I was going to just... I, I, have, I had a thought. I do remember at least part of the thought. Oh yes, this was exactly it. Swamiji talked about during the years when he was raising money to build Ananda and he was teaching classes in five nights a week in different cities all over the Bay Area right around here. And, you know, he just had this really killing schedule. And he said once he was driving back from one of the cities north of the city, Santa Rosa or somewhere, maybe even Sacramento, coming across the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said just right in the middle, he felt a cold invade him. And uh, he... And he just thought, I do not have time for this. And he shouted out loud, get out, get out, like that. And it just ran away. <laughs> and then somehow in that, con- now I may have these stories mixed up, but I believe what he said is part of the way Satan gets to you is he persuades you, you have to relate to what he's suggesting. And he said, you know, that he could feel the thought trying to force the cold trying to force Swamiji to consider it, to think about its reality and to wonder, you know, about being sick and just everything. But he just repudiated the, the very idea. So a lot of times what happens to us is we become persuaded that we have to think about this. And that was when I realized if I could just really, in a loud voice, if it was possible, but certainly with all my energy, simply fill the space with another set of words than the, the, the thought that I had to relate to this. Now, this is all based on psychological health. It's not a fear of facing it. It's not trying to suppress it. It's just recognizing that it's not necessary for me to relate to this. I, you know, if there was a, and that was when I began to realize that what it had to teach me would be told to me if I just held. That was when I began to realize that it was healthy. That it was a healthy kind of, I don't need to do this anymore. When I was very young, my friend Seva, every so often we'd just be walking and she'd say, Asha, you're doing it again, just stop. And I'd say, what, what? She said, thinking, just stop. (laughs) And she didn't mean useful thinking. She meant running in circles inside my head. But she, like, as I said about Seva, she just knew and she would just tell me. And she was always right. It took me a while to really get it because I thought I needed to do it. And then I finally saw, yeah, I don't. But that business about, if I need to know, it'll come to me. Very powerful because it will. Because insight comes when you shift your vibration and you see a reality you haven't seen before. And you don't usually shift your vibration by going like this. But it's, again, it's one of those things where you begin to tell what's useful and what's not. Make sense? All right. We actually finished number 315. (laughs) Okay, could I borrow a pencil or pen from someone, please? Thank you.